So in our household, in our current season of life, I take the kids to school and then I pick them up from school. And those of you who know our 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 only daughter, our our third kid, she is a little spitfire. And she wants things the way she wants them. And when they don't go her way, we don't just hear about it. Our neighborhood hears about it. Uh, The city hears about it. Well, every once in a while, every once in a while, I'll take a different way home. So we go the same way every day. But sometimes, just sometimes, I just want to mix it up. And when I do, you would thought... You would have thought I asked her to get out and walk the rest of the way. Where are we going, Dad? What are we doing? So I just, I say, well, honey, we're going to get the same. We're going home. I just wanted a different scenery, just different scenery. Now, that's my way of introing my intro. Today, we're going to get to Psalm 4. But I'm going to tell you, we're not taking the way we always take. We're going to take a very different route to Psalm 4. So if you've never heard me preach before, you just might think this is the way it always happens. No, no, we, we usually go a different way. But today I want to take a very windy path to show up at Psalm 4. I don't know if you, if you have this experience when you read the Bible like I have, but sometimes I'm reading the Bible and I hit these sections of the Bible and, I'm, and I just don't understand what it's saying. You ever, have you ever had that moment where, you're, where, you have, where you have that feeling like you just don't know what's going on in the Scriptures? Okay, so I'm not alone. I didn't think I was alone. So there are these pieces of Scripture that's really hard to understand. And here's the interesting thing. The Apostle Peter actually references the Apostle Paul and how difficult it's sometimes to understand Paul. I've got to show you the Scripture. In his second letter, Peter writes this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Look at what Peter writes. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do to the other scriptures, to their own own destruction. There, the Apostle Peter acknowledges that the Apostle Paul has written some things that are very hard to understand. But here's the thing about Scripture. Scripture might be unclear in some places, but it is always clear in its main message. And its main message is a message of salvation. The Scriptures will always get us to righteousness and godliness, training us up to every good work. Scripture will never fail in getting us to Christ. Okay? The Apostle Paul actually makes this very clear. In 2 Timothy, maybe you know the scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you can take that to the bank. Although there are some pieces of scripture that are at least hard to understand every day of the week, it will be clear on its main message. It will get us to Christ. It is all God-breathed, and it will all be useful for training in righteousness. It will always get us to Jesus, even in those moments where it is hard to understand. Now, Christians long ago came, uh, took this idea, and they summarized it into what we call a doctrine. 
a particular teaching of Christianity. And it is called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. That is, the Scriptures are sufficient in their main message, this message to get us to Jesus. Now I want to take us back. I want to take us back. If you didn't think this was windy enough, I want to go now 400 years ago. When these British these British Christians sat together in a room and they came up with what is now called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Some of you may have heard of that. In that confession of faith, there's this statement about the sufficiency of Scripture. I just felt like we had to at least acknowledge this. So in that, and this is a modernized version. We're not going Old English, we're going Modern English on this. Chapter 1, Section 7, here's what they wrote nearly 400 years ago. Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves, nor are they equally clear uh, to all people. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly discussed and made clear in some place of Scripture or other that not only the educated but also the uneducated may reach a sufficient understanding of them with the adequate use of ordinary means. That means you, you, whoever you are, can open the Scriptures and understand the main message of salvation. You can go to the Scriptures and they are sufficient to get you to Jesus. Even when they're really hard to understand. Now, why bring all this up? Because we are stepping into a very difficult passage of Scripture. It's not a long passage, but it's a difficult one. We're in a series through uh, the book of Psalms, and we're just working our way slowly through every psalm. And we're four weeks in, so today we hit Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 has lots of confusion wrapped around almost every verse in the psalm. It's one that has difficulty in translation, one who has difficulty in understanding exactly who's saying what to who and why. And what I want us to understand is even in the difficulty, even when I pick one one path of interpretation, when there are many we could have taken, even in the difficulty of this passage, it is sufficient to get us to Christ. So you get ready, because we're going to see Christ, and we're going to be trained up in righteousness, even... In a very difficult passage. All right. Let me show you one, just one example of some of the difficulty. We're going to take two translations just on verse 1. Take a look at this. So we're going Psalm 4, verse 1. We'll read them again when we get back into the passage, but I just want you to see verse 1. We'll read out of the NIV, and then we'll pop down into the English Standard Version. Now, some may say a more literal translation. On the NIV, the New International Version, Answer me when I call to you. My righteous God, give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Now, I've tried to color code this so you can see the corresponding differences. So in verse 1, my righteous God. Well, the ESV says, oh God, my righteousness. Now, those are two different things. My righteousness is something different than saying my righteous God. These are two different things. The translation here. We could just sit there and what the difference might mean for the psalm. Notice the next one. In the NIV, it looks like it's a prayer in the present. Give me. Like, right now, give me. But the ESV says, you have given me relief. You go back into older commentaries. Some of the old great great Christians of old. They're going to comment on the ESV translation. That is, 
that is the translation of it being a prayer of uh, a prayer in the present because of what God has done in the past. Well, the NIV doesn't go that way. So what is it? Is he reflecting back on the past, or is he is it just a current call for relief? There's a lot of debate there. And the here is I was in distress. The NIV says I got current distress. And then you got this bit of a difference on mercy and gracious. Uh, which which word do you want to go with? This difficulty in translation, we could just track that through the song. But again, I want to remind us, even in the difficulty, even in some of the confusion, this passage will be sufficient to get our eyes to Christ. It's going to have something to say to you and to me. Like right now, where you're living, be it in middle school or somewhere else, you got, there's a message here for you. So the other difficulty sitting here, and you can see it right, off the, right out of the bat here, is what's the distress? Something's happening. Now, the subtitle is going to be a Psalm of David. And remember what we said uh, last week. Those are not inspired subtitles, but we take them as accurate. But whoever's writing here is in distress, and we don't really know what the distress is. Well, I'm going to go with one interpretation that's going to run through the passage. Now, you might think this is a personal distress. I'm going with a different line of interpretation. And I want to pick up from one commentator, and he said, and I want to just go with, uh, go with how he has said it. So walk with me here. We're going to put it up on the screen, how he describes the context. The context of Psalm 4 is quite distinct from the personal attack that dominated the previous psalm. That's Psalm 3. Here, the motivating circumstance seems to be failure of crops as the result of some natural calamity, perhaps drought. Such distress as frequently occurred in ancient Israel raised questions about Yahweh's ability to provide agriculturally for his people and drove many into the arms of the foreign gods with their claims of prowess in agriculture and human fertility. The psalmist rejects the fertility deities as false gods, counsels his people to remain confident in Yahweh, and appeals to Yahweh to demonstrate his good intent to his people by providing for their needs. So what we have, it appears, at least this is the way we're going to run through the psalm, is that Israel is going through a very difficult moment. Most likely something to do with uh, a distress in agricultural resources. And the people have left their God in search of another God in order to fix the agricultural problem. And what I think we'll see, the reason I'm going with this interpretation, is I think, it, I think what it does is it, it, it allows us to run, walk through the psalm in a way that is not only coherent, but ties the whole thing together. Because in the psalm, we're going to have people switching back and forth. Okay, We're going to have, we're going to have the psalmist talking to God, then talking to the people, and then he's going to declare something about his confidence in Yahweh. And this situation may just help us see it all tied together. So let's pick up. Psalm 4, verse 1. Remember, we're not putting this on the screen, so if you have a Bible, feel free to turn Psalm 4, or just listen, just enjoy listening. But if you've got a Bible, you might want to come along. Psalm 4, we start, it starts this way. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Now, right out of the gate, which we've already acknowledged, this is a prayer for God to, to alleviate whatever the distress is. Take it away. Now, the thing I want to notice, I want to highlight this. He's praying to God. And you might say, well, who else is he going to pray to? Good question. I'm so glad you asked it. 
there were a lot of other options. When you and I hit a very difficult season in life, I'm sure all of you have hit hit difficult season. I don't care how old you are. You have hit some difficult season. You have hit a moment of distress. You could go a lot of different directions on seeking relief. But right out of the gate, the psalmist, it appears this is David, cries to God. Here's how we know there were other options. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 2. Now the, now, now the psalmist is going to shift and actually say something to the people. He's got a problem with the way the people have responded because there was another option. Verse 2. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? There's your other option. Let's just unpack that just a little bit because there's some stuff under the text that we've got to see. So there's that word people there in the passage. Now, we might think that just means the masses. It sure does appear that way by the way the NIV has translated this. But underneath the word people are two Hebrew phrases. And in the Hebrew, you can say people a couple different ways, and it can mean different kinds of people. There can be, like, the term for people that means really those in low estate. Those, like, the masses. The masses. There's another Hebrew phrase, another word for people, that it means those in elevated social positions. So I want you to see just how these are actually put together in one verse in the Psalms. I just want you to see how this looks if you had both of those phrases in the same verse. Take a look at this. Psalm 62, verse 9. Here's how this looks if you, if you, if you saw it in one verse. Those of low estate, there's the Hebrew word for the masses. Those in low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. So that Hebrew word for people, high estate, those in elevated social position, we'll just call them leaders. That's the Hebrew word sitting behind people in verse 2. Now what that does for us is it tells us something. The psalmist has not just turned his attention to the masses. The psalmist has something to say to the leaders. You see, the psalmist cries out to God for relief but the leaders are leading the people in a very different direction. Ah. Then there's this phrase. We'll just let's move on to see unpack what might be happening here. There's this phrase, my glory. They're turning my glory. Now this can go a couple different ways here. And there's debate here on how this might look, okay? Remember, I'm taking one track here on this interpretation. My glory could refer to David's own reputation, his honor. They have stripped him of honor, publicly humiliated him in some way. Or my glory refers to Yahweh. Because there are places in the Scripture where God, that is the God of Israel, Yahweh, is referred to as the glory of Israel. I just see one of those places. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, we see this. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Here, Yahweh is given the name, the glory of Israel. Now, if this is the case, if we just run that line here, and this is a reference to the people, the people uh, disregarding the glory of Yahweh by turning somewhere else in this moment of distress, well, then this is what this would mean. So I'm going to go with a commentator here just to make it concise. Here's what he says. We'll go to that next slide. The psalmist is not addressing a personal attack brought against himself, but the shame and approach brought to the glory of Yahweh. 
So the people are turning. That is, these leaders in the distress are turning the people away from the God of Israel, and they're turning them somewhere else. And that's the last part of verse 2, which is so important. They are turning them to delusions and false gods. Some of you might be using a translation that says lies. So, and, and there's a translation debate here on how to translate that. But we're going to go with the NIV here because sometimes that Hebrew word for lies is used in the context of idolatry. Okay, so, so the leaders are saying, the God of Israel's not working, let's go shopping. Let's go shopping. Like, is there a, there's got to be a better God somewhere that can fix the problem we're in. And the leaders are leading the people right on into their idolatry. Let's just go find another God. Now listen, I know I'm quoting a lot from a, uh, the commentaries today. But when I came across this, I just had to share it. I love the way he said it. So, so uh, sorry, not sorry, right? Yeah? Okay. Here it is. The psalmist's opponents are condemned not because they've attacked the psalmist's reputation and honor, but because they've offended the glory of Yahweh when they sought relief from their agricultural problems by appealing for deliverance to false gods. Man. So now what's going to happen is, because, because the psalmist here, most likely David, is speaking to the leaders who are leading the people into lies, into false, uh, to false religion, here's what he's going to do. He's going to have something to say to them. So we're going to, now we're going to switch now to some wise counsel. Take a look, verse 3 through 5. 3 through 5. Know this, know the Lord has set apart His faithful servant for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Which means He's not hearing when you call to the other gods, the lies. He hears when, when we call. Tremble and do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust the Lord. Basically, this is a call to repentance. Hey, you leaders, you leaders who went shopping for another God, you who follow lies, turn it around and you worship Yahweh. And, and as you reflect, which this is, this is a way, talking about reflecting on your bed is a way of saying, hey, why don't you just stand still for a moment and recognize what you're doing? And when you do that, by the way, when you, when you, re, when you, when you just, just stop for a moment, just consider like who you are in perspective of His glory, yeah, there's going to be some trembling. There's going to be some trembling. There is something, there is a holy fear that we need. God is not mean, but He is dangerous. You understand that about electricity, don't you? You don't walk around saying, man, that electricity is real mean. No. But man, you get on the wrong side of electricity. You've got a problem. And that's an inanimate object. Here we're talking about the God who is, who is good and holy and full of glory. You walk into His presence as a sinner. We need some, we need some healthy trembling. Recognizing who He is. And so David, or here the psalmist, says, you leaders who have turned the people aside, why don't you just stand still for a second and recognize, and recognize what you're doing? Because in the end, you're going to have to deal with us. The holy God of Israel. This is good, wise counsel. You trust the Lord. Do not fall in love with delusions. And then here as we end the psalm, David, or the psalmist here, is going to declare his confidence in Yahweh. 
what, you, what you're going to find, and we'll just do a short commentary on it before we dig on it, it will be a confidence not in abundance. Not that all of a sudden your wine vats are just flowing and your, your granaries are just full to the brim. No, the confidence will not be in the abundance. The confidence will be solely in Yahweh. It will be solely in the God of Israel. If, if it's drought, then let it be drought. If it's abundance, then abundance. But I'm not leaving my stand with the Lord, the God of Israel. He will declare this. And what he's going to do is you're going to see, he's going to contrast this. There are some who just want ab- prosperity, but not David, not the psalmist. He's, he, he will stick with Yahweh no matter what. And that's what he's calling the leaders to do. So let's end right here. Verse 6 8. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? He doesn't want prosperity. Here's what he wants. Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. At the end of the day, the psalmist says, it is not prosperity and it is not abundance. It is in the Lord I will rest. He will give safety. I will, not go, I will not go searching around for prosperity from other gods. I want your presence. I want your face shining on me. Like I want your joy. Because any other joy I go try to get, it's fleeting. I want your joy. That, that is a statement of confidence. And he wants the leaders to go that same direction and lead the people in the same direction. So as I'm reading that end part of Psalm 4, I couldn't help but just, just get hit with this, with this other psalm. It's one of my favorites. You see here, the psalmist declares, I'm going to be satisfied in the Lord, the God of Israel. Now listen, I like food. I like food a lot. You know I like peanut M&M's. Like that is satisfaction. But there is in this other place in the Psalms where David declares, God is more satisfying than the richest foods. And I can't help but taking the end of Psalm 4, this declaration that I'm not searching for prosperity because I know you have the joy. It is your countenance. It is you. It is in your presence where I will be satisfied. I can't help but take that and I want to match it with Psalm 63. So I just kind of, I, I want to view Psalm 63 as almost a commentary on the end of Psalm 4. Take a look. I know I'm going long on this, but you need this scripture. Psalm 63, verse 1 through 5. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I'm going to tell you, I'm not there yet. These words, I aspire to these words. But man, I want that to be true. If God gives me more decades to live, I want, by the time I'm in my 70s, to be a lot closer to those those verses. But that will be by by God's grace and the Spirit. But do you hear the call, the cry for satisfaction in His presence? Not in temporary pleasure. 
which is exactly what the people were. It was just running after him. All right. There's a lot in Psalm 4 right there. But here's what I want to do. I want to take all that and I want to make some application. I'm going to tell you this application got under my skin. As often happens, I have to live in this application long before you live in this application. So I hope you feel just as uncomfortable as I felt as I was working out this sermon. If your toes hurt afterwards, good. If they don't, wake up. You need to be like, stop, stop saying FD. I need you here. All right. Okay, here we go. If Mark was here, I would have called out Mark, but he's not here. All right. Here's this big question I think Psalm 4 draws us to. Here's the question. Why do I do what I do as it relates to Christianity? Like, I mean, why do I go to church? Why do I read the Bible? Why do I give tithes and offerings? Like, why do I do any of this? You want to know the secret? Inside my heart, in places I don't even understand, I know part of my heart comes to church and reads the Bible because I think it'll make God happy. And if God's happy, I'll have a good life. That if God likes me, and at least I do what He says to do, then He'll make sure I'm comfortable. Like, nothing bad will happen as long as I do the things He told me to do. So if I go to church, then I should have a comfortable, pretty easy life. Deep down, I turn this thing into a transaction. Deep down, I know. I know that's where my heart goes. One commentator, one commentator says it this way. Kara, I can't remember which slide is good. Okay. Here's what he says. And man, this hits at it. The core of the opponent's problem is that they understand religious worship and their relationship with God to be a matter of personal benefit. The focus of faith for those so inclined has a pragmatic edge. What's in it for me? Show me the personal benefit. Once faith came to be understood primarily in terms of personal benefit, pragmatics dictated that the Israelites shop around for the best deal. When this church thing becomes about you and me and what I get out of it, well then, eventually, when life doesn't go our way and we hit a very difficult moment, we're going to go shopping for the next new, shiny thing. You know why they're spending billions of dollars on commercials for you to watch? Because they know most people will gravitate to the easiest, most convenient solution. So, I'll come to church for years, but the day I get the diagnosis of terminal cancer, you know what, you know what deep down in my heart wants to say? Why me? This shouldn't happen this isn't the God I know. Have you ever heard anyone say that? If God was a God of love, He wouldn't do this. I'm just telling you, I know that I'm not big enough or smart enough to call God to the carpet on those things. But I tell you, my heart wants to. Why am I? Okay, so, so I'm really pushing on this. It's for this reason. So I tried to take this and I tried to make it real concise. So here's what I wrote. Here it is. Our hearts are always in danger of shopping around for another God when life isn't going our way or when another God seems to be more convenient or attractive. So here's the thing about all this. There are some warning signs. Like, there are some, like, real concrete things that you can, like, evaluate in your ordinary life to see if your faith is genuine 
or if it's just pragmatic. Like, I just do this Jesus thing because I just, I, I want stuff from God. This is really about me, and I just need a comfortable life. And if it gets uncomfortable, then I'm out. There are some concrete signs. Let me listen to them. And I just want you to know, I get these from my own life and where I feel my own heart trembling. I have a feeling I'm going I'm to touch on some others, too. Maybe your heart. Take a look. Here are some concrete signs. I think we can tell if we're, this is just a pragmatic thing. I give up on God when He doesn't give me exactly what I asked for. You ever prayed a prayer? An audacious prayer, maybe to save a loved one, and the loved one still dies. And what do we do? Where were you, God? God must not be here. God must not love me. I'm done. You ever known anyone give up faith? Walk away because, because something tragic happened or God didn't reverse it? I do. And I know my own heart. And you know the other thing about my heart? Is I know sometimes I don't even pray. Sometimes I don't even want to pray. What good will it do? Let's go with this next one. I come to church only when it's convenient and fits my schedule. Now, I'm going to be honest. This one doesn't apply to me. I get paid to be here. Like, I kind of have to be. But if I wasn't, I'd feel this one a little bit more. How many people only go to church when it's convenient? I'm telling you, this is a big one. And come out of COVID, it's a real big one. So when your schedule doesn't fit, schedule doesn't fit, your church doesn't fit in the schedule, we just don't go to church. You know how easy that is? Maybe the first time, a little harder. You do that for six months, you're done with church. Make sure church isn't just a convenience. And a sure sign is, is if you start missing multiple Sundays, and it has nothing to do with work, and it has nothing to do with you being on vacation. It's just it wasn't. It just it just didn't fit this morning. The kids were crazy. Everybody lost their brain. It's just a lot easier to stay home. When that starts happening, God has simply become a convenience, and you should stop and tremble. All right, here's this next one. I'm generous only when I have abundance. I feel like that goes, that's pretty clear. You ever get given when you can't, like it's hard to give? That's a good place to be. But how many of us only give when we've got a lot of money? All right, let's go to this next one. Let's go three more. I run away when someone confronts me about my sin. How many people I know that have left churches or broken friendships because someone called them out? I'm going to say it, don't you judge me, when someone calls them out on their crap. We need to call each other out on our crap. That's why we're together. If church always feels good, you may not be doing church right. Okay? That's why marriage doesn't always feel good. You think my marriage always feels good? No, it doesn't feel good. You think parenting feels good? No. You think my kids like us all the time? No. It's because we're always calling each other on our crap. And we are the family of God. And so if we run away, just because someone offended us, maybe this church thing was all about you just being comfortable. And maybe then we need to hear some poor. You need to stop and tremble. This isn't about you. 
The next one, I read only the Bible when I'm in the mood. Ugh. That one hits. That, I, I know I'm a pastor, but sometimes I wake up and I just don't want to read the Bible. And I don't. Sometimes you got to read the Bible because they are the words of life. Where else are you going to go? You will, and I will go somewhere. Do you read the Bible only when you're in the mood? That's a sign that this Jesus thing is pragmatic. Last, I rarely say no to my appetites and desires. The call of Christ is to deny yourself. And if you never say no to yourself, then what is this thing This thing called discipleship. What are you learning from Jesus if you're never saying no? And he's the one that said that this thing is about self-denial. I'm pushing real hard here. A bit long-winded on it. Because I am so convicted in my own heart to know how often I want this Jesus thing to be about me, to be about my comfort, to be just really convenient and easy. But the thing about this thing This gospel, this following of Christ, it was never about you. And it was never about me. It's about His glory. And guess what? If you were created for His glory, guess when you'll be happiest? When He is glorified. When your life is about your comfort, your ease, your convenience, and it doesn't work, there's a reason it doesn't work. Psalm 4, verse 2. You and I are Seek in delusions and lies. This whole thing is about Him. So I come to Him to learn how to live. We need that message. This thing is about Christ. Not me. And man, we need that in our world. Where everything is about me. Next step. So I want to just boil this down to something. Like, let's just do something this week. And you know, we always try to make this specific, but let's at least breathe enough that you can do it in your life, right where you live. Do something hard with God this week. And remember, Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's just another way of saying it's not about you or me. What do I mean, do something hard? This is where you need to have the flexibility. So, have you been uncomfortable in your faith at all the past week? Like, did you tell yourself no? At any point, because it was the way of Christ. Well, maybe this week, instead of having the fourth helping of your favorite meal, just hypothetical, um, instead of having your fourth helping and indulging, maybe you only have one plate of food. Because it is the way of Christ to deny yourself sometimes when your appetites are really, really strong. Or maybe this week, when you want to gossip about the co-worker who really is incompetent, but you need to stop telling everybody they are, don't gossip this week. Say no. This week, when you are so frustrated at something happening in your family, and you just want to like let everyone know with some very choice words, maybe this week you say, no, God, I'm going to do something hard with you. Because your way says it is a way of mercy and compassion. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to let my anger flow out. I'm actually going to go a different way because that's your way. This is not about me. It's about you. So I'm going to do this hard thing, and it's going to be really uncomfortable. The goal here, do things this week with Jesus that are inconvenient, uncomfortable, aren't easy. And as you do them, 
remember, you do them because He alone is the way of life. We need to be a people who are not in the business of shopping around for other gods that make our life easy and comfortable. We need to follow the way of Christ who says, pick up your cross, and my grace will be sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is holy and inspired. And although it is difficult to understand sometimes, it is sufficient to bring us to salvation in Christ. So this week, would you help us in really practical ways to say no or do something hard so that we do not fall into a pragmatic faith where following your son Christ is really all about our convenience, our comfort, our ease. Would you please, Holy Spirit, Would you challenge us? Would you dive into those dark crevices of our heart and mind and and transform things so that we stop and we tremble? You are God and we are not. You are the Son of the universe. How much? Do all of it through Christ who sits on a throne of mercy compassion. Under His name and authority, we ask this. And together we pray. Amen.